Marie Hilly is a mystery. Her presence still hovers over her family and friends, and with it, the deeply painful questions with no answers. What made her do such ghastly things, and what motivated her complicated stories and alibis? Was there anybody that she truly loved? And finally, who was the real Marie? Those who should have known her best knew her the least. And in the established tradition of quote-unquote black widows, Marie murdered her husband. And then it didn't stop there. Her murderous escapades undermined what should have been the most sacred of family relationships. And when it appears that she would finally be brought to justice for her crimes, she disappeared and began life anew with an assumed identity. One persona after another discarded when it no longer suited her needs. The story of Marie Hilly is a study of deceit, pathological obsession, and serial murder. You are now listening to Murder V. Wrote. I am your host, V. Probably, Marie Hilly was not the only black widow of note from the tiny mill town of Blue Mountain, Alabama. In the 1950s, Americans were shocked at the criminal exploits of one Nanny Hazel Doss, a sweet-looking woman whose jovial manner during her lurid confessions earned her the nickname the Giggling Granny. Um, I covered Nanny Doss a couple of episodes ago, so if you were interested in hearing her story in full, you can go check that out. Nanny was raised in Blue Mountain, same as Marie Hilly, and she later moved to Oklahoma and killed 11 people, including five husbands, two of her children, and her mother. Marie Hilly's tally of victims wasn't nearly as prodigious as Nanny Doss's, but her dark, her dark shadow loomed larger over Blue Mountain than Doss's really ever had. Marie Hilly's Alabama was not one of plantations and mint juleps. North Alabama, where the Appalachian Mountains finally played themselves out, is a rockier, less agriculturally hospitable place than some of the more cotton-friendly areas of the South. The cotton with which Marie would have been familiar was processed in the textile mills of Blue Mountain and Anniston, and the bustling industrial town on the outskirts of which Blue Mountain lay. Calhoun County, which encompasses both towns, was full of hardworking people who had never really known the fabled leisurely life for which the South is known. Her parents were Huey and Lucille, and they worked just as hard as everyone else. Each came from a family whose life was centered on these local mills, and when they married in 1932, each was already accustomed to long hours of labor required just to live, making a, a living in Depression-era Alabama. And when their daughter, Audrey Marie, was born on June 4th, 1933, Lucille held no illusions about staying home to care for the baby. She returned to her job at the Linen Thread Company as soon as she could, and relatives cared for Marie while her parents worked long shifts. The Frasers loved Marie, but there was never any doubt of that. They were, like the folks around them, realists. And times were hard, and a single income didn't stretch far enough to meet the needs of a family of three. And Huey and Lucille loved and trusted their families and were grateful for the help that they provided in raising Audrey Marie. And they tried to make up for that lost time by spoiling Marie. Her clothes weren't the best that money can buy, but they were pretty and neat and they were better than a lot of the kids around her. And from an early age, Marie got her way. The slightest correction or denial was likely to provoke a loud tantrum, and the Frasers, perhaps out of guilt for working so much, never saw fit to administer any real discipline. The Frasers thought that Marie would have a bright future. They thought that she would be, you know, that she wouldn't spend countless years breathing in the air of meals, that she would graduate high school and become a secretary. And though that seems like a very humble dream, it was high ambitions in the context of the time that the Frasers would have lived in. Blue Mountain girls usually got no more than a grade school education before they started working in the linen, the linen companies and Marie would be different. She was special. That's what her parents told her. 
1945, the Frasers moved from Blue Mountain to Anniston, and Marie began seventh grade at the junior high. And Anniston, though it is geographically close to Blue Mountain, was socially worlds away. Anniston had its own upper class who was comprised chiefly of the owners of the mills and factories where Marie's relatives had always worked. And Marie found herself among children of privilege and she cultivated friendships with them. She joined student council and was serious about her studies. She was pretty and well-dressed and by the end of her seventh grade year, she was named prettiest girl by the Anniston High School yearbook staff. Her success continued and she joined Future Teachers of America and the Commercial Club, an organization for girls who planned secretarial careers. Never heard of this, but again, I did not live in 1955. I will have to ask someone a bit older than me about it. Um, so her seriousness established her among her peers as a girl with really depth to her and dependability. She had looks and her style and she enjoyed the attention of course from other guys but she had already found who she was going to marry marie was betrothed and in love with frank hilly frank hilly was from an aniston family who worked in areas others big industries pipe making so clarence and carrie hilly had a warm family and frank and his two sisters may have lacked material things but they were well loved and their parents spent time with them and though frank had a bit of a temper he was loyal and reliable and when he met Marie at when she was 12 and in junior high school, by the time he graduated, he was smitten with her. I will say that there was a bit of an age difference, obviously. Um, you know, it was a different time, I guess, is what we'll say. I'm not going to call Frank a predator, but also craziness. Um, so Marie, against her parents' wishes, because her parents also probably thought he was a bit old for her, returned his affections. And though he wasn't from one of Aniston's richy moneyed families frank treated marie like loyalty and he was jealous of other boys attention to her um so he tried his best to keep her happy and like most young couples they had dramatic arguments but they always made up so when frank went into the navy after high school he pined for marie and counted the days until they could be together again he had been assigned to guam and the distance and time away were unbearable afraid of losing marie he married her while he was on leave in may of 1951 Marie stayed behind in Aniston to finish high school while Frank went to Long Beach, California to finish out his stint in the Navy. Marie joined him there after her graduation and later accompanied him when he was reassigned to Boston in 1952. At the end of his tour of duty, they discovered Marie was pregnant and when he was discharged, they moved back home to Aniston where they bought a small home. Frank got a job in the shipping department of a foundry, and Marie was, of course, the secretary, and their first child, Michael Hilly, was born on November 11th of 1952. Outwardly, the Hillies seemed happy and settled, but the first stirrings of trouble had already begun. Marie liked to spend money. When Frank had sent home his paychecks from California, Marie had spent them at astonishing speed, and when the time came for him to join them out west, she had no money for which to make the trip her in-laws had to pay her way. And these habits didn't abate, and though Frank liked to keep Marie happy, he found it hard to keep pace with her constant purchases of nicer clothes and furnishing. There were arguments, but Frank didn't like to fight and found it easier to just kind of go along with Marie's whims as everyone else had done before him. Besides, he thought he loved his wife. Certainly, she should have the best of everything. And so by the time Carol was born in 1960, Frank had been appointed foreman of the shipping department and Marie had had a, rep had a reputation as being an excellent executive secretary. And though the family's income had, had increased, it still barely kept pace with Marie's spending. And Marie was developing a disturbing work pattern. Though her employers found her professional and effective, her coworkers thought otherwise. Marie was judged and put on airs and played power games, but was always careful to remain respectful and subservient to the boss. And in each job, she eventually became unpopular with those around her and left, telling her friends and family that she had been ganged up on by her fellow employees. Her references were always excellent, though, and she never had trouble getting another job. Marie worked for some of the most powerful men in Aniston, all of whom spoke glowingly about her. Later, Frank Hilly would find out one of the reasons why. As the years passed, Aniston citizens grew to know the Hillies, and Frank was a member of the Elks Club and Veterans of Foreign Affairs, and though he liked to tie one on now and again, he was well-liked around the town. 
Marie was active at church and she volunteered at her kids' schools. And some found her peculiar and some noted that she reacted badly when she didn't get her way. But mostly people dismissed her quirks, attributing them to a, quote, high-strung nature. Carol and Mike Hilly wanted for nothing, perhaps, except their mother's attention. Like her own parents, Marie showered her children with material possessions, but remained emotionally remote. She administered little discipline and leaving that task to Frank mother, Frank's mother, Carrie, who cared for the children while Marie and Frank worked. Marie favored Mike and allowed him to grow into what people would consider a little hellion, brushing off his behavior with the casual boys will be boys attitude. As for Carol, she seemed always to be missing the mark. Carol was a tomboy, nothing like the demure proper daughter that Marie had envisioned. They clashed continually, and Frank Hilly, noticing that the effect that Marie's treatment was having on his daughter Carol, took a special interest in her and would take her for ice cream and to football games, and their close relationship really seemed to piss Marie off. From time to time, Frank was worried about his wife. Sometimes she would awake all night and he would hold her while she shook in nameless fear. She was rest restless and he was unable to soothe her. She soon began taunting him with love letters that she said she received from local men. And then there was her spending. Marie's refined taste kept the bills coming to the hilly home year after year. Sometimes Frank would reprimand her, but it really did no good. Marie wanted the best and she wanted it right now. She rented a post office box, in fact, and began having the bills routed there so Frank wouldn't know what she was spending, and she began taking out loans. In Anniston, a town list of 30,000 people, Frank Hilly was respected, and businesses extended credit to his wife out of courtesy. Frank had always paid every bill on time, so when his wife's accounts came past due, creditors took notice because this wasn't like Frank Hilly. And in the fall of 1974, Frank couldn't ignore the troubles in his home any longer. Word of his wife's credit arrangements had leaked back to him through the grapevine. Worse still, he came home sick from work on a day to find Marie in bed with her employer, Walter Clinton. Frank told his son, who was married by now and attending Atlanta Christian College of these latest developments. He didn't mention, though, his increasingly failing health. Frank was sick a lot during this year, and at first he attributed his weariness and periodic bouts of nausea and vomiting to something he'd eaten or to some exposure to chemicals at the foundry. So he was popping Alka-Seltzers and just kind of going along with it the best he could. But when the illness persisted and he wasn't seeing any relief, 19, by May of 1975, he decided to consult a doctor. Dr. Jones, a family physician, first prescribed fluids and then kaopectate, malox, and then an antispasmodic medication, and nothing seemed to help. When Frank's sister, Frida, visited him on May 22nd, he told her that he was sicker than he had ever been, and he feared he would die. He also told her that Marie had, on Dr. Jones' orders, given him an, eject an injection, and at the time, Frida thought nothing of it. At 3.30 the following morning, Marie Fra found Frank watering the yard in his underwear. She took him to the hospital where tests showed that his liver had failed. Dr. Jones changed his diagnosis to one of infectious hepatitis and described new medications. Frank's condition worsened. He was jaundiced, hallucinating, and very agitated. It was all Mike Hilly could do to keep his father from jumping out of the window. At around 4 a.m. on May 25th, Mike left the hospital to pick up his grandmothers and bring them to see Frank Hilly. When he returned about an hour later, he found his mother asleep and his father dead. The official cause of death was infectious hepatitis and Mike Hilly was buried on May 27, 1975. Mike Hilly preached at the sermon at his, preached the sermon at his father's funeral. Now, listeners, Obviously, this is a true crime podcast, and if you have been here before, you realize that, well, if Frank, if, if Frank Hilly had died of natural causes or infectious hepatitis, as Dr. Jones has suggested, then we really wouldn't have much to talk about today, now would we? Frank Hilly's autopsy report stated that he had died of natural causes, so Marie had no trouble collecting on the insurance that he'd bought through the foundry. And the total of Frank's policies was around $31,000. Not enough to make a woman wealthy, but still a nice windfall. And Marie began spending. 
For herself, she bought a car and clothes and jewelry. Her mother got a diamond ring. Mike and his wife, Terry, received appliances and clothes. And Carol got a car and stereo, furniture, and countless other gifts. But those closest to Marie noticed that the constant acquisitions did nothing to quiet her increasing restlessness. Marie was dissatisfied. She complained to several people that no one in her family loved her, least, at all, least of all Carol, with whom she was constantly engaged in a battle of wills. She complained about her boss and her job and about a string of petty thefts at her home, she said, began before Frank's death. Marie gathered her father, her family around her. Lucille, her mother, had been diagnosed with cancer soon after Frank died, and Marie bought her into her home to care for her. She also extended an invitation to Mike and Terry for them to live with her. Mike had a job as an assistant pastor at Indian Oaks Church and appreciated his mother's offer, relishing the idea of having his family close to him while he began his career in the ministry. He and Terry accepted, but soon regretted this decision. Marie and Carol fought constantly, and his mother's demands for his time and attention wore Mike down. And on top of that, his wife Terry was often ill with stomach trouble. During the time that she and Mike lived with Marie, Terry was in the hospital four different times and had a miscarriage. Her health problems only added to the tension in the hilly home. So he and Terry found an apartment, but the night before they were set to move out, Marie's, caught, Marie's house caught fire. So Lucille and Carol moved into the new apartment until repairs could be completed. And when the time came for them to move back home, the apartment next door to Mike and Terry's caught fire, forcing the couple to move back in with Marie until they could find new housing. When they finally succeeded in moving away from Marie, a strange new series of events began. Lucille Frazier died in January of 1977, and in the following months, the Aniston Police Department became increasingly familiar with Marie Hilly. The petty thefts had continued, she told the police. She reported gas leaks. She claimed to have found a small fire in her closet late one night. And her neighbor, Doris Troy, to whose, Marie, to whose house Marie had a key, found a similar fire in her own closet, but had no idea who could have set it. I have an idea, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Both Marie and Doris Ford reported harassing phone calls, and the police responded to dozens of complaints from both Marie Hilly and Doris. Every officer was familiar with Marie, and at least one took that familiarity a few steps further. Officer Billy Atherton fell for the beleaguered but charming widow, and the two began a sexual relationship. Increasingly restive, Marie, with Carol in tow, moved in with Mike and Terry in their new home in Pompano Beach, Florida. It was 1978, and Carol had just graduated from high school. Marie got an office job and returned home late most nights, but her nervous presence and well-established spending habits made life difficult in the hilly home. Upon her arrival in Pompano Beach, she had run up $600 worth of charges on Mike's visa card, saying she would reimburse him later. She and Carol still fought, and though Marie occasionally helped out with household chores and Mike and Terry's new baby, they were relieved when she and Carol moved back to Aniston within a few months. After Carol and Marie returned to Aniston, Marie started buying insurance. There were several policies, including fire insurance, cancer coverage, and life insurance coverage on herself. But Marie also insured the lives of her children. Mike was insured for $25,000, while Carol, through two separate policies, was insured for a total of $39,000. And upon their return to Aniston, Marie and Carol moved in first with Frank's sisters, Frida, and then with his mother, Carrie Hilly the strange occurrences began again. Small fires, cut phone lines, and increasingly a tendency for Carrie Hilly towards nausea and vomiting. Marie got a job at a dresser industries and also worked nights for Harold Dillard, the owner of a local construction company. She also, being a manipulative twisted affair, designed to bring Dillard under her spell and make him leave his marriage. Almost simultaneously, she began another affair with Calvin Robertson, an old friend from school. 
who had since relocated to San Francisco. She told Calvin Robertson that she had cancer and couldn't afford the treatment, treatment she needed. So he sent her money and she soon returned news that she had been cured. When he came to visit her in Aniston, he was like a schoolboy. And by the time he left, he was convinced that he would die for Marie Hilly. He wasn't ready to leave his wife quite yet though. Carol Hilly became ill in April of 1979. Now 19 and a freshman at a nearby college, she returned to her high school for its annual junior-senior prom. The night's festivities included the usual young adult diversions, food, drink, a little weed. And as the party wore on, Carol became nauseated. It wasn't serious enough to impinge upon her, her good time, so she ignored it and concentrated on having a good time. The following day, though, the nausea returned with a vengeance. Carol left church services early and vomited in the parking lot. On returning home, she discovered her grandmother, Carrie Hilly, was in the hospital after fainting at church. Carol accompanied Marie to the hospital, where she was sick all afternoon. After that, Carol Hilly would not be completely well again for a long, long time. Over the summer, she grew sicker and weaker, but she was still feisty, and although she was becoming increasingly dependent on Marie's care, she insisted on moving into her own apartment. Marie was a constant presence there, expressing concern and acting as Carol's caretaker. She administered Carol's various medicines and cooked for her. She took her to several doctors, and none of whom were able to explain with any certainty what Carol's torturous symptoms meant. The nausea and the vomiting, now constant, were accompanied by tingling sensations in her hands and feet and even worsening muscle weakness. This sounds very familiar, like something we've probably heard before, maybe 10 minutes ago in this episode. In August, Carol was admitted to Regional Medical Center in Anniston for the fourth time since April. Dr. Warren Sorrell was baffled and concerned, and he suggested to Marie that she should take Carol to Birmingham to see Dr. John Elmore, a psychiatrist. And upon Carol's release from RMC, Marie did just that, telling the doctor that Carol was despondent and had said several times that she wanted to die. I will note here that, note here that Carol was despondent and said she wanted to die because she was so sick she could barely hold her head up. And after a day of constant vomiting and weakness, I would understand the out loud exclamation of, oh my God, fuck my life just killed me already. I do not think Carol actually wanted to die. Carol was just having a really, really bad go of it that we are about to learn was her mother's doing. On Dr. Elmore's recommendation, Carol, however, was admitted to a psychiatric ward at the Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham. Carol, confined to this hospital, could not know that her mother was rapidly becoming entangled in her own web of lies and misdeeds. The checks Marie had written for the furniture for Carol's apartment had bounced, and had, as had many others, including some written for the premiums on the policy on Carol's life. The bank filed charges and Marie was arrested and then released on bail. In Florida, Mike Hilly was slowly coming to the conclusion that his father had probably not died of natural causes. He placed a call to the Calhoun County coroner asking about the possibility of exhumation and he was told that he would need lots of solid evidence for one to take place. But it was Eve Cole who sounded the final alarm. Eve was Carol's friend from church, and she had been present at Carol's apartment one night during the summer when Marie had given Carol an injection. When she called Carol at Caraway Methodist, Carol mentioned offhandedly that Marie had given her more injections during her hospitalization. Concerned, Eve told Carol's Aunt Frida, who called Mike Hilly, who in turn called his sister to find out the truth. Yes, Carol told him, Marie had given her shots. Mike then called Dr. John Elmore, who, although he didn't believe Marie was poisoning Carol, thought she was the part of the overall problem. He asked Marie not to visit Carol for a while. Marie became frantic. The day after Dr. Elmore told her about this, she removed Carol from Caraway Methodist, saying she was taking her daughter to the Mayo Clinic or Ochsner Hospital in New Orleans. Carol had been at Caraway Methodist for three weeks, she said, and hadn't improved. She was taking her where she could get better care. The mother and daughter spent that night at a motel, and the next day, Carol was admitted to the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. Dr. Brian Thompson was assigned to her case. 
On September 20th of 1979, Marie was arrested again on more check charges, and the rest of Carol's family took the opportunity to reveal their suspicions to her doctor. Though the story was fantastic and hard to believe, Dr. Thompson actually took it seriously. He checked Carol's fingernails and toenails for Aldridge Mies lines, which are white deposits clearly visible in the nails of those who have been dosed with, say it with me finally, arsenic. The lines appeared on every single one of Carol Hilly's nails. Dr. Thompson felt sure that further tests would reveal that Carol Hilly was loaded to the hilt with arsenic and had been so for a long time. Upon hearing his sister's diagnosis, Mike Hilly wrote a long letter to Ralph Phillips, the Calhoun County coroner. He recounted his father's rapid decline in death, Lucille Frazier's death, Marie's various checking and banking troubles, and Carol's illness. His mother was mentally ill, he asserted, and he wanted to help her. Marie, still in jail on check charges, was now officially under suspicion of murder and attempted murder. Lieutenant Gary Carroll had grown familiar, even friendly with Marie Hilly in, in 1977, when she had been in almost constant contact with the Aniston Police Department regarding the fires and the phone calls. From his dealings with her, he had sized her up as a financially and emotionally troubled but likable widow. Now he was heading her investigation. On September 26, he conducted and taped a two-hour interview with Marie, and mostly she dodged his accusations and tried to lay blame and suspicion elsewhere. But with careful questioning, Carol got her to admit that she had given Carol injections both at home and in the hospital, and that she'd also given her mother these injections. All of these, she claimed, were actually medicine, and she obtained one of Carol's injections from a woman at Carol Caraway Methodist named Mrs. Hill, whose daughter was a nurse there. Subsequent developments were as stunningly rapid as Carol's poisoning had been agonizingly slow. Frank Hilly's body was exhumed on October 3rd of the same year, and three days later, Frida Adcock searched the house where Marie and Carol had lived with Carrie Hilly and found a pill bottle half full of liquid. Tests proved that the liquid was arsenic. Arsenic was also found in a pill bottle that Marie had in her purse when she was arrested. The evidence mounted and Marie was charged with the attempted murder of her daughter, Carol. Meanwhile, the toxicology reports from Frank Hilly's exhumation were back. Arsenic was present in his tissues at many times the normal level and it was too soon to tell conclusively if the poison had been his cause of death. The day after the toxicology reports were released, Lucille Frazier's body had been exhumed, and the arsenic in her tissues ranged from four to ten times the normal level, though it was cancer that finally killed her. Marie's bail was remarkably low, considering the seriousness of the main charge against her. Five local residents, at the ambivalent request of Mike Hilly, put up $10,000 bail for the attempted murder charge and $2,000 for each of the check charges for a total of fourteen dollars Marie was leased, released on bond on November 11th of 1979, and on Wilford Lane, Lane, her attorney, took her to Birmingham to stay at a motel. In the coming days, she claimed she was afraid of reprisals from Frank's sister and asked to be moved to another hotel from which she made numerous phone calls to Mike and other relatives asking for money because of course she did. On November 18th, when Wilford Lane, her lawyer, and his wife came to visit at the hotel, Marie, to visit Marie at the hotel, they discovered that she was missing. Marie's clothes were strewn about the room and her suitcase lay on the floor and her purse had been emptied onto a bed. All that seemed missing were her wallet, credit cards, and checkbook. A note scrawled on motel stationery read, Lane, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. On that same day, Carrie Hilly died of cancer in Aniston. Tests done on strands of hair in the previous weeks had indicated elevated arsenic levels. Marie Hilly was now suspected of poisoning at least four people. Marie's trail went cold, cold almost immediately. On November 19th, Margaret Key, Marie's aunt, found that her house had been burglarized. Her car was missing, and as were clothes and a suitcase. A note at the scene said the car could be found in nearby Gadsden and that the burglars would not bother Margaret Key anymore. The car was found a few days later in Marietta, Georgia. 
the FBI then joined the pursuit, tracking Marie from Marietta through Georgia to Savannah, where she was reported to have left a motel with a man. And after that, there was nothing. Most fugitives are eventually apprehended because of their old habits. Something or someone in their past draws them to a someplace familiar where police, having studied the fugitive's past history, are waiting. The issue with this is Marie had no sentimental ties to bind her because, well, she had poisoned everybody that she loved or professed to care about. She simply disappeared. And back in Anniston, the final toxicology reports for Frank Kelly's exhumation had come in, and Marie was indicted on July 11th of 1980 for the murder of her husband. It is frustratingly unclear whether Marie Hilly knew John Holman before she claimed to have met him in 1980. In fact, she taunted both of her lovers, Harold Dillard and Calvin Robertson, with tales of John Romans, who she claimed she would marry, though she didn't love him. Carol remembered that her mother had mentioned a John Ronan who taught at Emory University in Georgia. But according to both Marie and John, they met in Fort Lauderdale in Florida in February of 1980. Marie was now going by an alias. She called herself Lindsay Robbie Han Hannon, and she hinted to John, the 33-year-old owner of a boat-building business, that her past was tragic. She was 35 and from Texas, she told him, and she had lost both her children in a car accident. John Holman's own life was no picnic. His alcoholic mother had died when he was young, and he was an awkward, shy man. He was recently divorced, and Marie's solicitous attention soothed him. By March, they had moved in together, and using a fictitious resume, Marie got a job as a secretary, of course, at an accounting firm in West Palm Beach. They didn't stay long, though, and in October, she and John left Florida for New Hampshire, where John's brother Peter lived. Marie and John rented a tiny house in Marlow, New Hampshire. John found work at Findings, Inc., which made small parts for jewelry. Marie got a customer service job at Central Screw Corporation in nearby Keene, New Hampshire, where her efficiency and Southern charm enabled her to excel. Her co-workers found her fascinating. As Robbie, she told them of her children's tragic death, a life in a wealthy Texas family, and an inheritance that she would eventually claim. And she seemed rather frail to them. She complained of severe headaches and said she'd been to many doctors to try to find relief, but to no avail. Though some of her co-workers found her abrasive and pushy, most considered her to be a sympathetic figure. The men especially found the woman they knew as Robbie Homan to be earthy and fun to be with. As her tenure at Central Screw lengthened, Marie's stories grew more involved. She was dying, she told everyone around her, of a rare blood disease that caused her body to make too many red blood cells. And though she and John were now married, she left her husband alone from time to time, telling co-workers that she was seeking treatment out of town from various specialists. She began to speak in detail of a sister, her twin whom she called Terry Martin. Occasionally, she would shut herself into an office at work, saying she was phoning Terry, who was having marriage problems and needed her. It was Terry, she said, who would take care of her during an upcoming trip to Texas. She was making one last attempt, she said, to find treatment for the illness that appeared to be making her increasingly more ill, and her husband would remain in New Hampshire and work while Terry would see to her needs. She was her twin sister and best friend, after all. So Marie left Marlowe, New Hampshire in September of 1982, but she only stayed in Texas a few days. Um, by September 23rd, she was in Pompano Beach, Florida. Um, her son, Mike, and his wife lived there, but I will point out that she did not visit them during this time because she was there for business. That day, she had her hair bleached. She went to an employment agency and seeked work under the name Terry Martin. And by the end of the day, she had secured a secretarial position at Solar Testing Service. She worked there for six weeks, telling her new boss, Jack McKenzie, about her twin sister, Robbie, who was gravely ill. Her sister had recently suffered a stroke and developed cancer, she claimed, and Terry felt responsible for her. And when McKenzie received a call in mid-November from his secretary claiming that she was in New Hampshire and that her sister had died, he wasn't surprised. She told him that she would be remaining in New Hampshire and, he thank and she thanked him for his kindness. In November 10th, 
Marie, now assuming the role of Terry, called John Homan to break the news to him that his wife, Robbie, had died. The next day, she flew to New Hampshire. Now, I will take <laughs> this time to say this is not at all funny because people died, but this has got to be the most insane portion of this story and probably one of the most insane things that I have heard in a true time case. A lady who is suspected of murdering most or trying to murder or poison most of her close family went on the lam, got married to a man, made up an entirely fictional twin sister, then left her husband in New Hampshire, went to, went to Florida, dyed her hair, lost weight, pretended to be the fictional twin sister, moved back to New Hampshire, told her boss in Florida that the fictional sister, Robbie, that she was pretending to be when she was in New Hampshire, died. So then Florida Terry moved to New Hampshire to go be with the husband of Robbie while also simultaneously being the same person, Terry and Robbie and Audrey are, and then pretending to be Terry Martin from Florida, who was there to comfort him from the death of his wife, Robbie, who was an alias for Audrey Marie Hilly the entire time. And if you think all of this is insane and you aren't keeping it straight, just wait because it is about to get more insane. John Homan claims to have believed Marie Hilly's new ruse of being Terry Martin from Florida up until the time that she was arrested. Her hair was still bleached and she had lost the weight and as Terry she carried herself differently. So I guess it's at least believable that John who was insecure and highly suggestible was fooled. The day after her arrival, she and John went to the office of the Keene Sentinel to place Robbie Homan's obituary. The short piece contained several fabricated details, which would finally be Marie Hilly's undoing. They later went to Central Screw, where Marie introduced herself as, to Robbie's former co-workers as Terry, the twin sister they had heard so much about. Some there believed her, and others weren't fooled for a second. And then the speculation began. Terry Martin, who used to be Robbie Holman, who is Audrey Marie Hilly, moved in with John Holman, claiming that they needed to be together to get over Robbie's death. She got a job just across state lines in Vermont at Book Press, a book printing company. And like her sister Robbie, Terry was, of course, a competent secretary. So she settled into this new job, and for a while, things seemed quiet. But back at Robbie, Audrey, Terry's old job, Central Screw, the controversy was still raging. Was she or wasn't she? And a group of doubters decided, well, let's get to the bottom of this. So they focused on the obituary. And this is when they discovered that several things didn't make sense. The hospital where Robbie's body had supposedly been donated to science, the Medical Research Institute of Texas, did not exist. They found that the church to which the obituary stated Robbie had belonged in Texas was fictitious as well. A check of obituaries and coroner's records in the Dallas area around the date of November 10th, 1982, yielded nothing. The doubting Central Square employees took their findings to their manager, who began some checking of his own. And his efforts also produced no corroborating evidence for the assertions in this obituary. The gossip about his amateur investigation spread through Central Screw and into the Keene community. And it wasn't long before local police were informed that something wasn't right about the woman who claimed to be Terry Martin. Detective Bob Hardy of the Keene Police Department started by interviewing the workers at Central Screw. And then he made some phone calls of his own. Again, nothing in this obituary added up. Hardy began making in inquiries with other law enforcement agencies, which makes sense because if you have an obituary for a person that you can't find a paper trail for and you have another person saying all of these things are true with no statement, no body, no actual dead person, well, why does one fake their own death? Usually for some type of criminal activity or to escape something else that is going on. So... Makes sense he wanted to get to the bottom of it. 
So the New Hampshire State Police told him something interesting, that a woman named Carol Manning, who fit Terry's description, was wanted for a bank robbery. So the authorities began watching Terry, and they soon decided that she was not Carol Manning, but that she must be Terry Lynn Clifton, a completely different fugitive. Now, I did not look up what it was that Terry Lynn Clifton was wanted for, but I think it is extremely important to point out that now we have the police in this area saying that they have two fugitive women on the run who also look like this woman who they cannot figure out who she is. So it is just strange to me that you have all of these women who look alike who are apparently just going around committing crimes. So on January 12th of 1983, they picked up Terry Martin, Audrey Marie Hilly, Robbie Hogan at her job at the book press. And when they asked her her name, her answer puzzled them. Not only did she tell them she was not Carol Manning or Terry Lynn Clifton, she remarkably told the truth. She told them she was Audrey Marie Hilly and that she was wanted in Alabama on bad check charges. And when the police put her name out on the wire, the word came back pretty quickly that she was, in fact, Audrey Marie Hilly. But she had more than just check charges to face back in Alabama. So authorities brought Marie back to Aniston on January 19th of 1983. And by now, the murder of her husband, Frank Hilly, had been added onto the charges and her bond was set at $320,000. This time, nobody stepped up to pay this. Um, and now Carol, who had physically recovered from her ordeal with her mother, had conflicting emotions and was anxious to see her mom. So Carol visited Marie in jail and cried and Marie hugged her and professed how much she had loved and missed her while she was on the lam. And in fact, Marie and Carol saw each other and spoke often during this time before her trial. And Carol wanted so badly to believe that her mother never meant to hurt her. And this, of course, worried prosecutors because they needed Carol's testimony. Judge Sam Monk presided over the trial. And ADA Joe Hubbard was the prosecutor with Wilford Lane and Thomas Harmon defending Marie. And from the beginning, it was obvious that the defense meant to sully Carol's reputation and make her seem unstable enough to poison herself. Basically, they said that the evidence would show that Carol used drugs extensively, was either homosexual or engaged in homosexuality, and that she has on three occasions attempted suicide. Now, I will say I do not like this type of defense attorney, and I understand that you have to do what is best for your client because that is the oath you took. But it always feels so sleazy and disgusting to me when they try to discredit witnesses, especially people that have been victims. And I mean, I again, I understand that that is their job, but it just seems horribly immoral and unethical to then present yourself in a way to where you're able to just smear somebody in the court of public opinion but I again get why it has to happen I guess to some extent but in this case Carol gets on the stand and she does really well she says that she smoked pot but she wasn't a drug addict and she says that yes she had engaged in homosexual acts but it didn't make her mentally unstable which I will point out correct being gay does not make you mentally unstable and that is insane to me that in 83, that was still something that people believed. So if you think that gay people have had rights for a long time, let me tell you, it is a relatively new phenomenon. And that's why we need to make sure that we are on top of their civil rights, just like everybody else's. Goodness. So they point out the fact that they say she tried to kill herself. But the attempt before her mother were arrested was arrested was almost laughable. She had taken five Tylenol. I will point out that I take like three or four Tylenol when I have a bad headache and I don't think I would qualify that as a suicide attempt. So not sure what they were getting at here. They said the other attempts that she had tried was when she was dealing with the physical and emotional torment caused by the poisoning. So prosecutors needn't really have worried. Carol's testimony that her mother had given her mysterious injections during her illness rang true. Frida Attic, who is Carol's dead husband's sister, so her sister-in-law, served to establish that the arsenic had been found among Marie's possessions. In addition to the pill bottle she had found at Carrie Hilly's home, Frida later found a bag containing jars of baby food, a spoon, and a bottle of rat poison that contained arsenic. Her defense attorneys 
ob objected and said that these items, as well as the bottle that the Lieutenant Carroll had found in Marie's purse after her arrest, had been seized illegally and should not have been allowed into evidence. Judge Monk overruled them. I will say I think it's interesting that these things that did not really go through the chain of evidence were allowed, but I guess I would need a lawyer to talk to me more about that. Uh, I'll have to ask one. I think that maybe it is because the police officer who arrested her found the items in her purse, and so those can be used as evidence because her purse was taken into evidence when she was arrested. So I don't know if that gave them probable cause to then take the other items, but it seems that other people besides the police found the items and then told the police about them. So I'm not really 100% about how that works, but in this case, the judge was like, nope, I'm letting it all in. So... Frida also testified that her brother Frank had told him that Marie was too was giving him injections. And then Carol's friend Eve Cole corroborated Carol's claim that her mother had given her the injections. Still, Marie's attorneys claimed that Carol had poisoned herself and that her sister-in-law Frida simply hated Marie and wanted her put away for good. But attorneys Wilfred Lane and Thomas Harmon were in for the shock of their lives, I'm sure. Marie had told the attorneys that the Sergeant Carroll had interviewed her in 1979 when she was arrested, but what she hadn't told them is that the interview had been taped. And in that recording, Marie admitted to giving Carroll two injections, saying that they were anti-nausea medication, and then she claimed that they had been obtained from a woman she met at the hospital. She also admitted that she might be mentally ill and that she might need help. Marie could not claim that she did not say these things because they were all there on the tape. And from the prosecution's key points, even Mike's testimony, which seemed to contradict some of them, was no help. On cross-examination, ADA Joe Hubbard got Mike to admit that Marie's rampant financial difficulties and to his own sudden violent illnesses, which appeared to be connected with Marie. His letter to the Calhoun County coroner, which he had assumed would remain confidential, was brought into evidence. Quote, it is my belief, he had written, that she probably injected my dad with arsenic as she had apparently done to my sister. End quote. Like his mother, Mike Kelly could not deny his own prior statements. And it took the jury just three hours to come to this verdict. Marie Hilly was guilty of the murder of Frank Hilly and the attempted murder of Carol Hilly. The following day, she received a life sentence for the murders and 20 years for the poisoning. And at the sentencing hearing, she again professed her, evidence, her innocence. And on June 9th of 1983, Marie entered Tutwiler State Women's Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama. Wow, sorry, Alabama. She was assigned a job as a data processor and was classified as a medium security prisoner. Despite the reports that she talked constantly of escape and reportedly made plans for a breakout, she was reclassified in 85 as a minimum security prisoner, so less than two years later, which made her eligible for passes and leaves from the prison. In late 1986, her first eight-hour pass was approved. That pass and three others came and went with no trouble. Marie were returned promptly each time, and by February of 1987... Just four years removed from her essential from her initial sentencing, she had qualified for a three-day furlough, and on February 19th, she left the prison for the last time. John Homan had relocated to Anniston, and he and Marie spent the weekend in a hotel room there. And on Sunday morning, she told John that she wanted to visit her parents' graves, and she would meet him at 10 a.m. at a local restaurant. Marie didn't show. Upon returning to the hotel room, John found a note. It said, I hope you will be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It will be best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. Marie wrote that a man named Walter was taking her out of town and that she would fly to Canada and contact John later. John immediately called the sheriff. Given Marie's history, authorities assumed that she had a well-crafted plan of escape and left the state quickly. No one expected what happened next. It was rainy and cold on February 26th when police were called to a house near Blue Mountain. A strange, delirious woman was on Sue Craft's porch and she needed help. She said her name was Sellers and that her car had broken down. 
she was suffering from hypothermia. Sue Craft did not recognize the woman as Marie Hilly, though she had known Marie years before. Within a few minutes, Marie lost consciousness and began convulsing, and her heart stopped in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. No one knew how long she had been wandering, but her body temperature had fallen to 81 degrees. Marie Hilly, who had always aspired to wealth and position, died an ugly, lonely death very near her childhood home. And on February 28th of 1987, Marie Hilly's children buried her beside Frank Hilly, the husband she'd murdered. In Aniston, the speculation continues to this day. Was there indeed someone who had agreed to help Marie escape only to back out at the last minute? If so, who was it? And why did he suddenly back out of the plan? And where was Marie for the four days that she was missing? Mostly though, they wonder what drove Marie Hilly to do the things that she did. And really the question of who was Marie Hilly, I don't think anyone knows the answer for sure. Guys, that is the story of Marie Hilly, a very strange story with a bit of comedic relief in the middle, I would say. So thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any comments or questions or concerns, uh, please reach out to me. The show's email is at murdervpod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show's Twitter and Instagram. Those are at murdervpod for both. You can also follow my personal socials. They are at VJ underscore Burton on Twitter and Instagram as well. We would love to hear from you. The show is available anywhere that you enjoy podcasts, um, but particularly on Apple Podcasts. If you could please like, rate, subscribe, and share. Um, if you like the podcast, please don't hesitate to give us a five-star review. And if you think there are things that I can improve on, I am absolutely willing to hear you out on those things. So please don't hesitate to leave reviews. I would love to hear from all of you. And I think that is all I have for you today. And until the next time, you have been listening to Murder V. Wrote, and I am your host, V.